Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. Papa. My dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today's guest, Uni Turatini, has law degrees from Norway, France, and the United States. But instead of practicing law, she's ridding the world of loneliness. She's an author, a facilitator, a speaker. Oh my God, her list of where she has been is crazy. ABC's The List, The James Altucher Show, Fox, C-SPAN, BBC World Podcast, The New York Post, the list goes on. It is such an honor. Uni, welcome. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. So I want to start with that. I'm going to give that to you. Ooh, okay. So, well, I'm telling people a lot about it now, but I think maybe one thing that people don't know about me is that I am an enthusiastic ice bather, meaning that I go swimming in the cold fjords, you know, in the winter. I actually swim. (laughs) That's crazy. I saw that you added that to your LinkedIn profile. I was like, um, how did that start? It's going to be six years now when my husband and I, well, we we moved from Switzerland. My husband is Swiss. We lived there together for 12 years and our kids are born there. And then we decided to move to Norway, which is my home country. We arrived, it was end of summer and it was a really nice summer. And so we started, you know, like swimming in the sea and the salt water. And I always love that so much. It was kind of like a challenge between the two of us, you know, like, should we continue swimming? And like, let's see how long we can do this. And then, you know, we, we ended up swimming through the whole year. So like a couple of times a week in the winter, in the summer, a lot, you're like almost every day. Cause we live by the sea and in the winter, it's like one or two twi- times per week. And it's pretty cool. And now we actually managed to, to get a group together. So we, we go like on the weekends together with the group and it's, it's really fun. Oh my God. Like what are people's first reaction to that? Actually now it's become quite popular, but when we started, it wasn't like a thing. And then of course, you know, Iceman Hoff, you know, and the whole ice bathing method and, and breathing and all the things. So, you know, that's really popular, but I see it more and more now on social media that people do this thing. And and also like ice cubes in the, in the bathtub. And like, we don't do that. Like we go in the actual, actual fjord. And sometimes we have to push the ice, you know, to get, to get out there, (laughs) but because it's salt water and it's like circulating, it's not frozen, you know, most of the time. Yeah. So how do you know that you're not getting like hypothermia? The short answer is that you you don't, but I don't stay in there long enough to get hypothermia. I mean, we get up before and most of the time we go as a group and we don't always go in all together so that we can actually, if something happens, you get a cramp or something, you, someone else can fish you out. It's also, you don't start when you first start, you don't stay in long. So like in the beginning, I remember that it would be like a joke with my husband that, you know, coming out, I was like, I'm not even sure that my bathing suit got wet. 
you know, it was that quick. <laughs> and now we stay in for a little longer, you know, do a bit of swimming and then we go out. So I kind of know my bot, like I know how it works now and I know when I need to get out. So that's when I get out. Yeah. Do you think that there's health benefits to it? Oh, totally. I mean, my husband, he swears by it, you know, like he sniffs the salt water and it's kind of like cleanses out your sinuses and whatever, if you have a cold or anything like that he swears that like it cleans everything out. So we do that and it kind of works. Like we're rarely sick. Also, I used to have always cold hands and feet. Like I was always freezing. Like I'm not cold anymore because what what it does, right? It's such a shock on the body that it kind of like protects the vital organs, right? Like I get out of the water and it's not even, I'm not even in a rush to get dressed. It's such a rush and there's so many happy hormones like oxytocin, dopamine. It's such a rush, you know, especially also because in Norway, the winters are really dark and cold. So for me, it's my Xanax. It's my anti-depression <laughs> drug, you know. Would you say that that has given you this beautiful skin that you have? <laughs> Ooh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I definitely think it helps. You know, it can't hurt. Also, I'm a big fan of, of sleeping. I used to, you know, when I was younger, I was working in corporate, in law, in law firms. And back then I thought it was a virtue to show that I could work through the night and just go home, take a shower, come back to the office. And then working at, of course you burn out. You know, I, I fainted several times, you know, I was not in good shape, right? For several years now, I protect my sleep. I make sure that I get to bed at a decent hour in the evening, not too late because I don't nap during the day. So if I don't get my sleep during the night, I can't function over time, right? I mean, you can do it in short, you know, short amounts of time, but the older I get, the more sleep I need. So I'm like eight hours, at least eight hours, you know, for me to function. So I think that also helps for my skin. <laughs> I mean, I am totally with you there. I'm kind of a pushover. Like right now I have a two-year-old that's supposed to be in playgroup. Like I signed him up for like a morning program. If he goes to bed late and sleeps till 11, he's not going to school. Like I yeah. value sleep. I value sleep for my children. Like, I don't mind if they're late to school. I know how important sleep is. Yeah. It's so important for our, just our general health, physical health and mental health. Right. And I agree with you. Like my kids are older now they're 11 and 14, but those years when they were little, like from zero to like four years, those were hard years in terms of getting enough sleep, right? So I think also that's why I, like after that, I was like, okay, I am going to sleep. The party until the morning kind of like, that's over for me. That's not even something that I want to do, right? Like I'm like, okay, like after a dinner party, I'm like, okay, better get home. Got to get to bed. I enjoy getting up early in the morning. So if I'm going to get up early in the morning and get the most out of my day, then I need to get to bed. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but loneliness is your jam. So I want to talk about like, how did you get interested in that? I know you did a Ted talk where you compared yourself at one point to a lone killer mm -hmm. that I loved the comparison there. Let's talk about how you got interested in loneliness. I love talking about that. I compared myself and I still do to a mass killer. It took me some time before I realized that that's why I was so fascinated by these, you know, lone wolf mass killers. And so what happened in 2011, we had this, you know, horrendous incident here in Norway, this young man, Anders Breivik, he exploded a bomb in the city center of Oslo. It was at a time where not many people were there. So he killed eight people, of course, hundreds, you know, 
wounded and, you know, losing limbs and, and, and whatnot. So horrific, but he wasn't happy with the results. So as a plan B, he, he got away from there and he drove like 40 minutes outside of Oslo, got to this island where there was this teenage summer camp. And then he shot 69 people on the island, most of them teenagers and kids as young as 11 years old, 77 people killed in one day. That was such a shock. That was really, for us in Norway, we're such a tiny country. That was our 9-11. I mean, that was like, we're still not over that, right? It was such a blow to our country. And I remember I was following the case. I was reading like everything I could read about the incident. I was following the trial because he survived. He, he was, you know, put in jail. He's still in jail. But I didn't, like, there was something that was unanswered for me. Like, I couldn't understand how could this happen? And this young man, he, he grew up not far away from me, like a 20 minute drive from me. You know, we came from similar backgrounds, same culture, school system, all the things. He came from a you know, well-educated home and he was a smart guy and he had never been violent, showed any signs of violence before, had never done anything like this before. I had to know, how can this happen? How could you know someone go to that extreme? And I was home with my two small babies and you know, I thought that, well, I, you know, and I was missing this sort of intellectual challenge as well. And I thought to myself that, oh, I have the time I can do this. So I started researching, you know, I looked into his background, but also I started researching similar lone wolf mass killers around the world. One thing I love research and I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd. So I would contact all sorts of experts. And what's funny about that and what's great about that is that when you dare to ask, people are really happy to share what they know, right? So I met these amazing people. You know, I became really, you know, great friends with a former FBI profiler. And, you know, she is the expert in the world. She has a PhD on these types of killers, right? She even wrote the introduction to my book. It took me some time to realize that that was the sort of the conclusion. I think, you know, even after I was done with the book, that's when I realized that, oh my God, the reason I'm so fascinated by this topic and wanting to, to try to figure out like, are there warning signs? What can we do to prevent the next one? Right. But it was also because I understood, I understood the things that he went through to get to where he was before he committed these atrocities. Right. It's not that I defend what he did because I can never, you know, never, never defend it, but what drives all of these killers. And that was so shocking to me was that they all felt a lack of belonging. They didn't feel that they had a place in our society. They felt very much alone. They felt lonely. They didn't have that sense of purpose. And they felt that they couldn't be themselves in our society. And so they were seeking outside. And also they had a problem in psychology, we call it attachment issues. They had attachment issues also from early childhood. So they were incapable of having meaningful relations relationships as adults. Now that's not my case, but I could recognize myself in that being young, growing up as a child, we moved around a lot. So I felt very rootless. I never had, you know, my grandparents or any relatives except for my parents in the same place. And I always felt like I was the weird one speaking the wrong dialect, not wearing the right clothes. I was always like, you know, I didn't belong in places, right? I suffer from that as a child growing up, but also as I got older, I didn't always 
feel that I could be myself in our society. There were so many expectations of how you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be thinking. And especially here in Norway, it's very much a culture of, you know, what we call the tall poppy syndrome. If you stand out, if you're a bit different and you're the tall poppy that like you stick your head out, it gets chopped off very fast. So you're supposed to just like be like, like fit in, be like the other kids. So all of these killers that, that I studied, and there were hundreds of them, I found they were what some psychologists call orchid children, meaning that most of us are like dandelions. You know, dandelions are sturdy, they're solid. They can grow at the side of the road, a polluted road, right? Like they can survive and they grow and they thrive, right? So that's the case with most of us. Most of us, you know, we can have difficult childhoods, we can have difficult things happening to us, but we will live, still live a decent life. We'll get over it. We'll manage to overcome our challenges, right? But these orchid children, they are hypersensitive. So for them, what might not have been a big deal to us is a big, really big deal for them. And they can never get over it and they never forget. So they carry these traumas with them. And there's always some, some sort of instability that happened in the childhood, either, you know, like divorce, feeling abandoned by often the father, a mother that couldn't provide a, a stable home, different things that created specific challenges for them. But unlike most of us, these children will never get over them. So that in combination with not being able to form meaningful relationships is just a devastating combination. I am really interested in what you discovered about his childhood. In his case, so this, you know, Anders Breivik, his father was a diplomat and they, he was born in London and they lived in London, but the parents divorced when he was a baby. So the mom, she had a daughter from a previous relationship. And so she took her two kids and she moved back to Norway, to Oslo. She had a lot of uh, mental issues. She had a really difficult childhood and she had difficulties supporting her kids financially. The father wasn't very willing to help, although he did provide some help. She had difficulties taking care of her kids and providing and taking care of herself. Her daughter, the sister of Anders, she was very much the caretaker of the family, which is probably why she survived and overcame the challenges of that home. But the younger brother, he couldn't deal with them in the same way that, that she could. And so the mom was unstable. It would be this sort of, you know, she would hug him and, you know, have him, you know, sleep in her bed and she loved him so much. And then the next moment she would scream at him that she hated him and wish, you know, I wish you were dead, that kind of thing. So it was like cold, hot, cold, hot, you know, very difficult to adapt to and to know. I mean, this, this uncertainty all the time, like what's mom feeling? What's her emotional state, right? Very hard to, to deal with for, especially for such young children. Did you ever interview any of his family? No, I wasn't able to. I tried to. And I also, I'm still trying to, to be able to interview him in jail, but the state hasn't allowed anyone to do that yet. So yeah, we'll see maybe one day. I yeah. feel like that would be so good for the next book. Yeah, absolutely. And also the mom died. I think she, it's just broke her heart. She wasn't well before and she had, I believe also she had cancer. She passed away sadly during the whole trial. She didn't last long. The sister is left. The dad, of course, he is retired. He lives, I believe he lives in the South of France. He wrote his book about like feeling somewhat guilty for what had happened, but not really, you know, is impossible to get a hold of. And the sister, she actually lives in California. She moved from Norway and got away when she was young, when she was 16, she moved. 
and she never Maybe came back. Maybe you can track her down with your research yeah. skills. Yeah, absolutely. I have tracked her down, but she's not giving any, she doesn't want to be involved or she doesn't want, she just wants to move on with her life, which, you know, understandably so. Wow. And where were the parallels for you? So under Spryweek, he made such an effort trying to fit in and be like everyone else. He wanted to get involved in, in politics and he was rejected. Every, he felt rejected everywhere or because he was anticipating being rejected. He rejected himself. He did something that would provoke a reaction that, you know, people wouldn't necessarily want to be with him. So he criticizes the society of sameness. He wrote a long manifesto, thousands of pages, which I, of course, you know, read numerous times. He has a point. I can recognize myself in that and suffering from not feeling that I was free to be myself completely, which is why I left Norway as a young woman, I was very young when I decided that as soon as I could, I would leave Norway and I would try to find belonging and find freedom elsewhere, right? So I went to the United States, to Kansas City of all places, as an exchange student. I would have loved to stay. I had a wonderful family there, host family there, and that I still keep in touch with. But I had to go back to Norway and finish off you know, high school here. And I started studying, but after a couple of years of, of studying law, I moved. I moved to Paris, continued studying law there and stayed. So I lived in Paris for eight years. I also went to, to the U.S., studied some more in the U.S., became an attorney in New York. And so I was sort of back and forth between Europe and the States. And then I met my husband and who is Swiss. And then we moved to Geneva. I never thought that I would move back to Norway. I was very happy living abroad. But the one thing that I realized after I, I had my kids, because I always thought that once I marry and I have my own family, have my own kids, then I'll feel like I belong. Then I'll be fulfilled and have everything that I ever wanted. And I discovered that that didn't happen. So I went through this depression when my kids were, were small, especially after the firstborn of not understanding why I didn't feel more fulfilled, why I didn't feel happier. And so, and this terrible guilt too, because I had it all. You know, I had a great life. I had a great career that I willingly, you know, gave up. I had these wonderful, amazing, healthy kids. I had a great husband. I had everything I, I thought I ever wanted, but what I was lacking, and this is where this connection and loneliness part gets really interesting, is that I was lacking connection. I was disconnected from myself. And so when people say they're lonely, which was my case, and which was the case of all of these mass killers as well, what we're really saying is that I don't believe I'm worthy of love and connection. Being the loneliness part starts with a disconnection from ourselves. And when we're disconnected from ourselves, we cannot connect in the way, in a satisfying way with other people. And it's funny because if you ask anyone around me, they couldn't tell that I felt empty and disconnected and lonely because I had it all. I had people around me and I have social skills. I have a husband I love. I have kids that I love more than anything. And I have friends and I have, I have it all. But when you are disconnected, it's impossible to feel fulfilled with anything else. It's, it's that connection with the self that is lacking. And that took me years, Rina, to discover that part. And this is what's so obvious to me in our society with this 
loneliness epidemic, right? That we're going through. We're so disconnected. We're also disconnected because this uncertainty that we're living through right now with the pandemic, you know, we don't know what's what. It seems that our leaders don't know what's what. And sometimes it seems that they're not making logical decisions. And when they make mistakes, of course, they make mistakes. We all make mistakes, but our leaders have not perhaps understood the importance of owning their mistakes and taking responsibility and asking the public for forgiveness. And instead, they treat us like we are not worthy, like not worthy of their forgiveness or that we don't deserve better, or they treat us like we're stupid. And that creates a distrust, a a general sort of distrust. And when you don't trust your leaders that they have your best interests at heart, and this can be political or even in within a company, right? Then you go, you try to go elsewhere for belonging and connection. And so what happens in our society, and this is what we've seen for years now when it comes to terrorism and terrorism organizations like ISIS in in Syria and the Middle East, is that even young people from the United States and Norway who have nothing to do with Islam or nothing to do with the conflict in Syria and and ISIS, they are for some reason drawn to these terrorist groups because they provide one thing. They provide a sense of brotherhood or sisterhood and a sense of belonging that we have failed as a society to give, especially our young people. We see now in our society that in the US, two thirds of American adults struggle with loneliness, according to the latest surveys. Two thirds, that's like more than 60% of the population, right? It's, it's huge. And the ones that are suffering the most are the young ones, the ones like in college, the young adults, the college in their thirties, they seem to like, what's the purpose of it all? Like what's, what's happening in our, like, there's so much misery. There's so much devastation and fear and what's happening. So what's the point in even starting a family, having kids in this world? Like what is the meaning, the the deeper and bigger purpose of it all, right? So that is a big part of loneliness too. So there's this disconnection from ourselves, which happens because of trauma, because of many different things, right? Because we also try to be someone that we're not. And this was my case, right? Like I was trying to be something that I thought my environment, my society wanted me to be so that I would be loved and accepted. In that process, trying to be someone I'm not, I lost connection to myself. And that took me so long, Rena, to come back to and to reconnect and to reconcile with myself. And I think for me, the real reconciliation happened when we decided to move to Norway. For me, that was a way to face my demons and my inner demons, right? Like about, okay, it's not about my loneliness, my disconnection is not about trying to escape and moving to a different place where if I can't find connection here, well, I'll just move to a different country or a different continent, right? And try and find it there. It was really about coming to terms with me and finding back to myself and my roots. Oh my God. I absolutely love that. And I want to know what came up for you when you went back. Oh my God. It hasn't been easy. Let's put it that way. It's definitely been what I needed to do. And I know that I needed to do this, but it hasn't been easy. And I've been faced with old, you know, childhood friends that maybe I discovered are not the people that I want to be as close to anymore. 
also because I found my voice when I started writing. Like I was critical to our society, not only to Norway, to Norwegian culture, but all of our, like the whole Western culture where we are looking for happiness outside of ourselves, where we're looking for fulfillment someplace else, like, and, and blaming. It's a society of, of, of where victimization is, is huge and we're blaming everyone else and everything else on our unhappiness, right? And that's also a disconnection. So I was criticizing our cultures and that wasn't well received by some of my childhood friends and my culture. So there has been people that we don't speak anymore, some members of my own family. It's been hard, but when you find your voice and you start using it, the price of silence becomes too steep. It's not worth it. For me, for my own sanity, I'm a truth seeker. And I'm a truth teller. That doesn't mean that my truth is the truth, but it's the way I observe and I see things. And that's something that, especially right now, I think we are, our democracies are also in trouble because we're not allowing, we're not, you know, we see this censorship in social media and what we're allowed to think and say. In a democracy, we should welcome different opinions. We should invite people to the table for a conversation. This is just my opinion, Rena, but we should try to, and this is something that I try to do in my life and with the people that I meet, is to try to see beyond and be curious and even though I don't agree necessarily with their point of view, whether political, religious, or whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. What I care about is to try to understand where are they coming from? What's underneath all of that? How can I relate to what's underneath whatever it is? And that's how I could find empathy with these mass killers, because I understood their pain because I could relate to their pain, even though we took a different path from there. But I think if we're going to heal as people, as individuals, and as a people, as a society, we have to at least try to go beyond our superficial differences and try to empathize and understand because we're all just people. We're all just trying to, to make the best out of life. And we all just really want to be seen heard and valued. Nothing else mattered. Did you find it, that in studying all of those murderers? I found that in studying all these murders and I found it for myself. I found that like in myself, that that was what I was really longing for. But to be able to receive being validated by other people, I first had to value myself. I had to respect myself. I had to reconnect with myself. It's really, it all comes down to the connection that we have and the relationship that we have with ourselves. And that's how we can build better relationships with other people. The empathy comes from knowing ourselves and our own flaws and our own, you know, just being honest about how am I not tolerating the other, the ones that are different? How am I at war with myself we have all many different parts of ourselves, right? And there are parts of us that we really like and really enjoy. And there are other parts of us that like, and we don't want to look at those parts, right? And so we have to also recognize that before we start judging other people. What's so interesting to me is when you talk about having it all, like you've got the husband, yeah. you've got the kids, you had the career, you've traveled. Mm -hmm. I heard you say on another podcast, but like, how many friends do you need? How many people do you need to, to be connected to? You said you only need one friend. 
Yeah. I also think it's really interesting that what you said about disconnecting in order to connect. What does practicing self-love look like for you? Like, and how have you been able to like really get into those parts of yourself that you want to fix? This is something that I love talking about. So thank you for bringing that up. It's a daily process. Self-love doesn't look the same every day. For me, one of the practices that I have is that I love getting up in the morning and, you know, after I've taken my dog out to pee and, you know, I got my kids ready off to school, I sit down with my journal and sometimes it's for 20 minutes, sometimes it's five minutes, but I sit down with my journal and I take a you know, few breaths and I, you know, try to reconnect with me before I get off to that, like that oh my God, I have a million things that I need to do today. And I ask myself, how can I love myself more today? Asking myself that question reconnects me to myself. And it's a way of, of showing myself love and respect. And then whatever comes up, I write it down. Some days, maybe that looks like that I'm going to, oh, I'm going to work out. I feel great. Like I need that extra energy. I have, you know, maybe a podcast interview, or maybe I'm going to give a, a presentation or a talk. So I feel pretty good. And I, I work out and I play with my dog. And, and other days that looks like lying down on the floor for half an hour and just breathing you know, getting through the day. Maybe I make myself a nice cup of tea or coffee, you know, just trying to treat myself because I'm feeling down. So I'm just trying not to be so hard on myself because I tend to be really hard on myself. Like I'm a recovering perfectionist. So I've always been very hard on myself. So that's a practice that I have is that to be kinder to myself. And to allow myself to not be in great shape. If I'm not in great shape one day, if I don't feel good, that's okay too. So I try to give myself the grace to take a day off if I need to, right? Or maybe take half the day or, or just a few hours, you know, whatever it is, maybe I need to just get up and move, just go take my dog for a walk again. You know, like I do that a lot. <laughs> so it's just, you know, just little things. And these can be different for everyone, right? This is just some of the things that work for me. One of my self-love practices is to sit down and feel whatever it is that I feel. I learned this really great thing from this woman who is a psychologist, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, and she's amazing. She taught me this and she says that an emotion only lasts for about a minute and a half. So if you can sit down and just sit with that emotion, it's like a wave can feel really comfortable, uncomfortable, or even painful. But if you can just allow it to like just move through your body and just breathe through that emotion, eventually it will subside. It, like a wave, it will, you know, go out again. That's one of my self-love practices is to like just feel my emotions, allow them to just like wash over me. And then like I try to let it go. Sometimes I have to do like, like that multiple times, right? And she said something that I really love. And it's like, if you can survive for a minute and a half, that's usually less than half a song, then you're okay. You're going to be okay. As we all know, you know, our emotions, when we suppress them, they don't disappear. They will come back and haunt us forever, right? Until we deal with them, until we learn from whatever, you know, whatever it is that we need to learn. Yeah. Do you think it's actually healthier to let some of that explode? I do. I do. I do. Instead I of implode. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, our addictions, right? Addictions, any sort of addictions, whether that's, you know, alcohol, drugs, or shopping or overworking, like I, you know, used to overwork or perfectionism. All of those are just strategies to not try to feel 
all our stuff. I think it's definitely healthier to try to feel them. And anger usually hides something else. There's always something underneath the anger, but you won't get to that stuff underneath. You won't get to that as easily. You have to move through the layers, right? So finding ways to move through and to channel our emotion like anger is really healthy. I wish that's something that we would teach our kids in school. Not just the intellectual stuff, which is great. You know, we need that too. But we need to learn about life and how to live. And if we can teach our kids ways to move through the anger without having a tantrum. If you look at these lone wolf mass killers, all of them blowing up a building, killing all these people in one day, that's their tantrum. That's their way of releasing that tension of all the anger, all the disappointment, all the hurt, all the pain building up over the years. And they didn't find a way to, to get it out of their system. And that became their way. I'm actually glad you brought up the school thing because I am really curious your thoughts on education and how it's changing. Mm -hmm. What I see here in Norway, at least, is that there's this anarchy. It's messy. It's noisy. Teachers don't have the authority that they need to actually teach the kids what they need to know or to take control of the class, it's gotten out of hand. So what I see, at least here in Norway, with a lot of, and these are, you know, these are great parents. It's not that they're not, they're not bad people. Like none of them are bad people, but I see that they're not giving their kids the limits that are necessary for them to feel safe. You know, children need to know their limits and they will only learn their limitations or their limits of what's wrong and right by testing. So they will always test. What we did with our kids actually is because, you know, we came from, from Switzerland, from Geneva, French speaking. So we had our kids for two years in the Norwegian public system. And then we moved them over to the French school in Oslo. And that's been really good for, for our kids because they came from a different culture in Switzerland where it's very much discipline. The teachers have authority. And so you have an environment in class, which is very quiet and calm. People raise their hand to speak. They respect their teachers. They know that being disrespectful or, or saying bad words or being mean to another student is just not tolerated. And so they won't do it because they know, they know where the limit is. And I think that what I see at least, I don't know how it is in the US, but in Norway, at least in the public school system, there seems to be no limitations. The words, the bad words, I mean, there's even violence in the school because the kids just have zero limits and there are no consequences to their actions. So how are you supposed to learn when there are no consequences? I have to say that we're trying to shelter our kids from that. Yeah. And it's also hard for the teachers. I mean, teachers, they really do God's work on this planet. We treat them by underpaying them and undervalidating them and undermining their authority as a system. Like, it's hard to point the finger on like what is actually where did it start? Like, how did it be, get this way? But something needs to change. We need, like, we need to start appreciating our teachers. They need to get the support they need and the education that they need so that they can teach our kids because they spend so many hours with our kids, right? Like, like it's like a job. We spend most of our waking hours at school or at work. So these 
places need to be a place where we learn about connection, where we, where we learn about being human and what it is to be alive and how we can adapt and deal with the challenges of life. Are you involved with your kids' education and communicating with your teachers? And you probably have one like in high school. What was that transition like? Well, in the French system, it's, it's, quite smooth the transitions into the different different levels so but my husband and I are very much involved with our kids and their education and we're not involved in the PTA or in in the in the school we like we've managed to stay out of that like <laughs> but we have a good communication with the teachers of our kids and with the administration at the school and so it's very easy for us to pick up the phone or send an email if there's something that we seem that something seems off and they are extremely good at communicating with us as well if or something they see that, you know, there's a need for kids for something, they, they're really good at that. But that's because, you know, this is also a private school. This is, you know, in the public school, you know, you could always try to communicate, you wouldn't get anywhere. And that was our frustration with, you know, with the public school system. Interesting. So what is next for you? Like, what are you excited about researching now? You know what? I'm still very much involved in the whole loneliness connection. I think especially now with what we're going through this pandemic, so many people are working, still working from home, the social isolation, the polarity in the world. I feel that I have a calling to do whatever I can, right? Like on this little scale, you know, that I'm doing it at. So I, I love writing. I also love working with people. People. I love being in contact with people and talking like we are right now. And also most of us as adults, we spend most of our waking hours at work or in the workplace, even if we are working from home. The way I see it is that this whole societal issue and this epidemic of loneliness, if we can start with the workplace and create a culture of belonging and connection in the workplace, then we can get the relationships that we need at least in that space. And that can do a lot. So what I'm doing now is that I'm working with, with companies, with corporations, organizations to work with their teams, with their leadership, to try to create this differences and slight differences in the culture. So I help them with mindset. It's really about making relationships a priority in the organizations and investing in their people. And it doesn't take that much, but the upside is huge because not only, you know, you create wellness for people in the workplace, right? That affects the company bottom line, people's performance and productivity. And it also is a way of tackling this whole loneliness epidemic. This is something that I feel really strongly about right now and which I'm really going to focus on this year and probably for many years to come as well. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I definitely think that a lot of companies could use that and it would help them retain their employees. Absolutely. Talented people, they won't stay if they're not happy. It doesn't matter how much you pay them. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Ooh, yes. I would love to ask him, how does he see with his experience and life experience, how does he see, you know, with the polarity in our society and this loneliness, how does he see us coming together as one people? Any insight, any tips, anything that he can give us on how we can do that? I would greatly appreciate. Yeah, that's great. Nobody's asked him that. And I think that he will definitely have something to say about it. So thank you so much. Feel free to promote away. How can people get your books? I know you have a course. How can people connect with you? All of the good stuff. Oh, absolutely. I'm on Instagram a lot or LinkedIn, so they can connect with me there. I'm the only one in the world with my name. So Uni Turatini, that's U-N-N-I Turatini, that's T-U-R-R-E-T-T-I-N-I. -T -T -I, -I, I know. 
It's a long and complicated name. Google that and you will find all of my social media. And I also have on my website or on social media, I have this free guide to help people deal with loneliness that you can just download and hopefully it will be some help. So, you know, and I also have this course you will find on my, on my social media and, and stuff as well. Oh my gosh. This has been amazing connecting with you. Thank you. I absolutely loved this. So thank, oh, thank you. you. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Uni presented a question at the end of her dissertation is how do we get a polarized world to come together when there's so much hate, so much manipulation by different people against other people? It's a damn good question. And this has been going on for thousands of years where people are willing to die over a piece of land, willing to die over an insult. And uh, was it honorable in the days of past to, to have a duel if you insulted one's body or wife or girlfriend to shoot it out? In the Wild West, where you'd have brawls and, and bars and they would shoot each other, uh, people today, where if they get uh, frustrated or want to make a name for themselves, good or bad, where they take out rifles and start shooting up uh, places, or if somebody feels like they have been mistreated or don't seem to have the same opportunities as other, other people, that they should be able to rampage stores and property and steal and put, set things to fire. And we're supposed to come up with a constructive answer to this question. It maybe sounds like a very simple answer. What we need all of us in our lives is encouragement and love and self-worth and to have also activities where all people can participate. I think participation and doing something constructive with your life is a key to getting out of the abyss. Sometimes our institutions are very hypocritical where they're not really in it to really better people. Sometimes the tool of money can have also a helpful effect, but also a deterring effect on people where it's all about the money and it doesn't matter the feelings or what they're really representing if it can cost them. So we have to have some type of value system that value people over material things, over getting the edge on someone else where the good of all people has some common bond. And uh, that takes not only education, but it takes participation and encouragement and where we help each other out, where doing a mitzvah, as Rena would know, is as important, if not more important, than doing something for yourself. She makes a very, very clear point that people that are lonely, people that get depressed, sometimes they don't only punish themselves, but they punish people around them where they feel like people are out to get them or that they didn't have the cards dealt well for them. Let me take some other people out with me. Let me share my oppression with other people. Let me destroy myself, but let me destroy other people. And your guest wisely says is that they're really pulling a, a temper tantrum, but a deadly one. We have to be able to find people that have that type of temperament and be able to help them where they don't go over the edge. And isn't that the truth about even people that take drugs or alcohol or any other substance that can put them over the edge? And yet, when it comes to money, drug companies want to make their money. People want to be able to sell their booze. People want to be able to sell their tobacco. People want to be able to sell all kinds of different drugs, whether they help you or hurt you, because it's all about the money, honey. 
Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 